The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Isaiah chapter 62. Uh, some of you are newer with us this evening. Uh, welcome. I want to give you a short recap so you have some idea what we're reading. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet who lived just before the time of what is called the Babylonian captivity. Uh, Isaiah lived in a day and age in which Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, had been, for the most part, conquered already a short time prior to because of their sin, because of their idolatry. They turned against God. They did not obey the law of God. They did not worship rightly in Jerusalem, especially after the the division of the kingdom, after Solomon. Um, God brought... Uh, judgment upon them. Judah is the primary tribe in the south of which the southern kingdom has been named after. And Isaiah is writing a book, uh, a word from the Lord to them, uh, just before God brings a great judgment upon them. Uh, The words that Isaiah has given to the people of God uh, are primarily filled with, as we've seen, if you've been with us Wednesday night, Uh, an explanation of why God is bringing this judgment, which is the sin of the people, the hard-hearted, rebellious nature of God's people. They, just as the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, in those last, especially last few generations before the captivity, turned greatly against God. They worshipped idols. They were doing everything that pagan, idolatrous nations were doing in injustices, mistreating of the poor uh, the wicked were triumphing, and God said, I'm, I'm going to let the Babylonians come in, and they are going to totally demolish the promised land. They're going to lay Jerusalem flat. They're going to leave those who survived this, this onslaught back as slaves captive to the land of Babylon. He's telling it beforehand as a warning to God's people that they ignored, they did not repent. And so... There are words of great judgment through the book of Isaiah. God saying, I will judge you because of your sin. There are also, intermixed as we've seen, these promises of redemption, these promises of restoration that all revolved around the servant of the Lord who was to come, who would be the one through whom Israel would be redeemed. God's people would be uh, renewed and restored, even Jerusalem, Zion itself being rebuilt. The latter half of this book, is written prophetically from Isaiah to the captives who would be in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity. And what was written was to inform them that they didn't lose this battle against Babylon because God was weak and just too weak to deliver them or you know, too distant and unconcerned that God has said beforehand this is going to happen because of your sin, and that God is actually doing it in order to turn you to back to Himself, to draw you unto repentance through the sufferings of judgment, that they may come to an awakening, an awareness of the sinfulness of their sin, and find that God is still a God who saves, that God is still a God who would redeem them. And there's promises of renewal and restoration, especially in the latter portion of the book of Isaiah, even these last chapters of which we're looking at in these past few weeks. This evening's chapter especially, we're we're going to see chapter 62. Uh, The beginning of it is a repetition of the promise of God to deliver His people and restore Zion. That though this group of God's people are living as slaves, everything they've ever had and owned, demolished, taken away from them, they're slaves in a foreign land. 
God is saying, I'm going to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to renew my people. Um, giving this promise, this assurance of salvation that was to come. And as we looked at a few chapters ago, we find the fulfillment really is completed, I would say, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like what Jesus accomplished at Calvary is the means through which the fulfillment of these promises come. And I argued a couple of weeks back and where I land that it is fulfilled in a multitude of different ways throughout the church, the millennial kingdom, and the new Jerusalem that is to come. Now, there are many who choose one and give a preference to only one, set at odds against the other, and I see a multiple fulfillment in this new covenant, a multiple fulfillment in the restoration of Zion, that there is a sense in which the church is New Jerusalem. The church is the place of God's rule over God's people. And yet, I do believe there will be a a turning to ethnic Israel in a millennial kingdom upon the return of Christ, and then also, many of these promises point us to that which will be the new Jerusalem and a new heaven and a new earth that is to come after the completion of all things, after uh, that final ju- day of judgment, after the creation of new heaven and new earth. Some of you may hold a preference to finding the fulfillment of these promises in uh, one of those three at odds against the other. I am kind of an oddball that can, can, can mix them with conglomerate and puts them all together, and I see a fulfillment in all of the Above And as tonight goes, we will see, I, I really want us to focus on what does this passage mean for you and me tonight. As much as so many love to get so bogged down and entangled in trying to understand the prophecies in relation to end times and how everything's going to unfold then and there and what exactly is going to happen, we can get so bogged down in that that we lose sight of the fact that these things that were written beforehand, Paul says, were written for our admonition. Our exhortation, our learning, our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And we can lose sight of the application of God's Word, especially when we look to passages like we're going to look to tonight. If we get lost in a presumptuous speculation as to how they apply to end times, eschatology, things that are going to happen when Jesus returns. So I want us to think, how does this apply to me tonight? How does this apply to you? tonight as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're going to see, verses 1 through 5, which we're about to read, will be a repetition of the promise of Zion being restored. And then in verses 6 through 12, what we find is a call to be faithful watchmen, a direct fulfillment of these words found in the prophets that God raised up in Israel's day and age. Uh, But I want us all to see tonight an indirect fulfillment or application of these words to even you and me as priests, as prophets in a sense of the new covenant of this age of the church, this side of the cross. Let's read through Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, Zion, the city of God, Jerusalem, Zion meaning a city of a great fortress, of a great defense, representing that protection, that place of God's rule. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Zion, Jerusalem, one and the same. That's Hebrew um, poetry being synonymous, repeating the same thing in a different way. Parallelism, Zion is Jerusalem. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. 
You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name, which shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah, which means the Lord delights in her, and your land Beulah, which means married, that it would be the place where God and God's people and the land are in a sense married, a a unity, a a communion that will exist ultimately in that new heaven and new earth. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. Uh, Again, meaning the oneness of community um, that is reflected even within marriage. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And in verse 6, an exhortation. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him, capital H, rightly so in the New King James, give him, the Lord, no rest until he, the Lord, establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies, and the sons of the foreigners shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. A promise of the opposite of what was going on in that day and age as they were slaves working and others benefiting from the labor of their work. God says, no, there's coming a day where where you will eat the fruit of your labor. Go through. Go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the peoples. Indeed, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. Again, there is a direct application to the prophets of old who God raised up as watchmen over the people of Israel to be exhorted by this word, to be ones who would proclaim, as we're going to see, proclaim the sins and injustices that they saw to the Lord in light of the promises of the Lord and also proclaim to the people who were all around the the promises of God's salvation. And so that is the direct application to those prophets. But as we think about our duties as believers on this side of the cross, as a new covenant people of God, Gentiles who have been grafted in, we call it the church even, but we are the church who has been brought into Israel. We've been brought into the covenantal promises even of God. There is an application to you and to me in the same manner, in the same light. There is something that we hold to called the priesthood of the believer. That every one of us is, has direct access to God through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every believer has been given a prophetic ministry in the sense of we live as salt and light before a lost and dying world. We live uh, as those who speak the gospel to uh, 
homeless people in Ocala. We, we live as those who are supposed to live as witnesses wherever and everywhere we go. And we speak into a culture with a prophetic voice, the voice of God's Word, declaring forth the truth of God for the generation that is all around us. And so there is a fulfillment of, of an application within the church, within you and me tonight. And I don't think it wrong to take these words that, yes, in their immediate context, in their historical context, are speaking of the prophets of old, and say, God, how does that speak to you and me tonight? To say, this speaks to the ministry of every believer under the new covenant, even us as Gentiles who have been brought in as the people of God. We have been given a prophetic ministry. And so I will apply it in such light this evening. I want us to look through just two simple duties that I already gave to you and apply them to our lives tonight. Duties of the watchman on the walls. It's a call to be a faithful watchman. A call to be a watchman who is not distracted. A watchman who is not asleep. But a watchman who, as the very name of of his position entails, who watches and who proclaims what he sees and what he knows. What is a watchman? That day and age, cities were surrounded by a wall for defense. They had a, a large, high, hopefully very high wall that if any attacking enemy were to come and try to besiege the city, it, it would be a fortress, a wall, that, that could withstand any attacks. It also would give the people on top of the wall uh, an advantage of great sight to see at a distance any enemy that was coming or any event that was happening outside the city wall or even any event that was happening within the city wall. And those soldiers who were appointed to be on guard on top of the wall, those are the watchmen. Their primary duty was not to fight, but was to be the notifiers, the ones who would give a notification of that which they saw. And so a watchman would be failing to do his job if there was an army that was coming in the distance and he failed to notify his commander and sound the alarm, there's an enemy coming, get the soldiers ready, get over to the east side of the wall, they're approaching. A watchman may see a skirmish happening in the city and notify the captain, send soldiers over to this area of the city, there's a riot that's going on that we have to squash. It was the watchman's job to be on watch. And to be ready to give notification, to sound the alarm, to to bring the message of what he saw to the commanding officer. What is the Lord saying in verses 6 and 7, really 6 through 12, where he says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord... Do not keep silence. Notice first in verse 7 especially, one duty of the watchman is to proclaim to God himself, to the captain, what you see in light of what he has promised. This is interesting. One of the duties of the watchman says in verse 7, not keeping silent, verse 6, and give him, give God no rest till God establishes. Establishes what? The promises that he has declared, the restoration of Zion, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. 
It, it was an exhortation for the watchman to actually report to the commander the injustices that he sees, the wickedness that he sees, the burdens that he sees, and, and report them to the commander, to God himself, not give God any rest, which is an interesting expression and thought, in his uplifting of his proclamation of what he sees in this life to God, based upon the promises that God has already given of the renewal and restoration that he would accomplish, that he was going to bring about. What do we call it when we talk to God? We call it prayer. This is actually a command to pray, to report to God that which you see, knowing that God has made promises of making all things new, of making all things right, of being the just judge of all the earth, that we report to God the things that we see that are not right, the things that we see that are a burden as watchmen, knowing that God has promised He will fix them all, crying out to Him to fix them all, because He has promised He will fix them all. It's interesting what we do when we pray. Is the watchman here commanded to give God no rest with these proclamations of the, the enemies that He sees, of the injustices that He sees, because God is asleep and needs to be awakened? No. Is God uninformed? Is God ignorant of the things that are transpiring and He needs His watchmen to let Him know that which He does not know? No. There's a call to persistence in this, these words. Persistence that you give God no rest. It's an interesting thought to give Him no rest. That, that you, you're constantly proclaiming to Him as a watchman the things that you see in this life that aren't right. The things where God needs to intervene. Where God will someday intervene. And you give Him no rest until He, he is going to. Until He does intervene. You, you pray with persistence. You pray as, as even Jesus says of the friend who knocks on the other friend's door at midnight and the friend doesn't get up and give him food because he's his friend. He gets up because of the annoyance of the knocking even. And he gets up because of the persistence of the person knocking on the door and he gives that which is being requested. It's a funny story Jesus gives that deals with the persistence of praying without ceasing. Of being watchmen who are on guard, calling out that which we see that is not right. That which we see that is hard and that is a burden and that is an injustice and is the attack of Satan even in this life that we're, we're lifting up to God and in a sense not giving Him any rest because we know He's promised He's going to make it right someday in His own timing and His own way. It's a call to persistence in prayer. It's a call to be watchmen who are watching and praying. But why? Why pray to a sovereign God? Why do we pray to a God who we believe knows it all? If God knows the end from the beginning, if God knows the words on your tongue before you even speak them, what's the point of praying to such an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God? God is sovereign and He's going to do what He's going to do. Why bother praying at all? Have you ever had those thoughts before? Is that just me? <laughs> Ever thought about how does God, God work through the prayers of His people? You, 
got to get to the point where we come to understand the bigness of God. That God has chosen to work through the prayers of His people. God has chosen to make His watchmen a part of the equation of His sovereign working in order that we can play a part in this whole grand scheme of things by His grace, ultimately for His glory, that He delights in us. Now you realize our praying, being watchmen and calling these things out to God, is not for God's benefit. It's not that God needs your prayers and He cannot work until you pray. He's limited and His hands are tied until you build up enough Santa Claus belief that God is now able to do that which He hopes He can do. It's not that God is far off and and ignorant of the things going on in your life and He needs you to notify Him before He can act. None of that is right. All of that's bad, bad theology. You don't know about the God of the Bible if that's the way you think God operates. The truth of God's Word is that God has chosen to make you and to make me, to make His watchmen that He's appointed, part of the means of His sovereign work. That He has chosen to work through the prayers of His people. He's given us the privilege of being watchmen for our own benefit. Understand this, that the prayers of the people of God are not, not, not so much getting our desires and will accomplished in heaven as it is getting God's desires and wills accomplished, will accomplished in us. That prayer changes our heart. That if you think about it for a moment, if we are watchmen on the wall and we never proclaim we, we are asleep. We are deceived by the deceptions all around us. We are not rightly depending upon the power of our captain to deliver, are we? We're not rightly focused on the power of the captain and what is to come and what will be accomplished. But when the watchman is on the wall and he's unable to defend himself, but he sees, he's seeing rightly, and he's proclaiming to the captain, there's an issue, there's another issue, intervene, we need your help. It's really, it, it helps us to rightly focus upon God and to rightly seek His will to be accomplished on this earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's going to bring His kingdom. He's promised it. Why are we to pray that He will? Because as we pray those prayers, we become a part of the equation of God doing it. That God has moved upon and commanded His people to pray in such fashion that He works through the praying people, the prayers of His people, the praying watchmen, in order that they become a part of this equation. And even through their praying, their focus is now set on eternal things. Their focus is now set. When we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, where is our focus? Our focus is, you know what? This world isn't what it ought to be and all that it will be. There is a God who is over it all and working something that is to come. And His kingdom is here in part, in some way, shape, and form, even within the church. But there's a better place that's to come, thank God. A place where there are no arguments and sins and lies and slanders. And God's, God, there's a kingdom that's already here, yet there is a kingdom that's coming. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's going to bring it about with or without your praying, but He has chosen to make your praying a part of the equation. 
God works through the prayers of His people. He's chosen to work through the prayers of His watchmen. And He commands here, do not keep silent. Do not give God Himself rest until God establishes that which He has promised. And so we cry out to God as we see the injustices of this life. It actually helps us to rightly see the injustices of this life. It helps us to rightly be dependent upon God and focused upon Him and living in the dependency upon Him as we turn and proclaim to Him, God, will you, will you right this wrong? Because it's wrong and you were just and you were right and I know someday you will make all things new. God, will you heal this cancer? God, will you heal this sickness? I know you, you may not do it in the here and now, but I know there is a heaven, that is, a new heaven, new earth that is to come. There's resurrected bodies that are to come. I know it will happen then, but God, if you so will, you could do it now. I, I pray will you do it now for your glory. You promised you love us. We know you love us. You promised you'll heal us. And that doesn't necessarily mean in the here and now, but, but maybe you will even in the here and now as a, a glimpse of that healing that is to come. We pray the prayers that we pray based upon the the wrong that we see, the pain and suffering that we see, clinging to the promises of God and not giving Him rest in the sense of persistency, lifting those up to Him, knowing that God from the very beginning has chosen to be at work in such fashion through His people. Not that we're changing the mind of God, as if God were going to do something else until our bright intellect intervened to make God be aware of what He should do. No, God all along is going to do what God's going to do, but the beauty of it all is He's made us an equation of what He's going to do. And He gives us the privilege of being a praying people, of submitting our, our, our burdens and all the pains and sufferings and, and wicked things we see and justices that we see, of being watchmen on the walls that can, can proclaim those to God, knowing that He will work through the prayers of His it is a gracious act of a sovereign God to allow finite, broken people to be a means of His workings. He does it for our good and benefit, not His. It's not that He needs us, but it's that He delights in our understanding of our need for Him. And so to word it applicationally to you, as watchmen on the walls, we are to lift up prayers to God regarding all that we see that is not right, good, and just. There's the take-home for, for point one. We are, as watchmen on the walls, to be a praying people. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41, in the garden, what did Jesus tell His disciples that were there with Him? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. What did Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7? But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your praying. This is in time as Peter writes those words. Be serious and watchful in your praying because the end of all things is at hand. We are to be the watchmen of God, lifting up prayers to God, knowing God is at work through the prayers of His people. Be praying watchmen this evening. Second duty. Verses 8-12, through 12, not only do we have a duty to proclaim to God what we see in light of what He has promised, but secondly, there's also a duty to proclaim to one another what God has promised in regards to His salvation. To proclaim to one another the salvation of the Lord. 
Verses 8 and 9, we won't read them again, but they're a promise of, of God's restoration that's coming, the salvation that will occur. Verse 10 is very interesting. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Take out the stones. Lift up a banner for the peoples, for the nations. Just Israel, but there's a, there's a picture here even of the Gentiles who will be flooding into the city of Zion for the salvation of the Lord. And he's saying, prepare the way for it. Go through the gates and open them wide. Build the highway that's going to bring them in. Take out the stones and lift up the, the banner for the nations. Indeed, the Lord is proclaimed not, not just to Israel, but to the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Salvation's coming. The servant of the Lord will come. Redemption will come through the servant of the Lord. Behold, his reward is with him. He's bringing the reward of who he is and what he's going to do. The restoration, the redemption, the renewal. This is all pointing to Christ and his work before him. What he does will accomplish what he's promised. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. This applies to Israel and the millennial kingdom. Yes, I'm not denying that. But I would also argue this applies mysteriously to you and I tonight, you and me, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has brought us in. And He has called us a holy people. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You and I, are we not called the redeemed of the Lord? 1 Peter 1, 18-21 speaks of redemption that's been purchased for us, not by gold or silver, but by the precious blood of Christ. Are we not called the sought out? Those who were far off that God has brought near. Ephesians 2, 11-13 Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All that is theirs is now ours by the grace of God in Christ. Are we not... All the city not forsaken. Ephesians 1 and verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us acceptable. Acceptable. You and I, acceptable in the Beloved by the grace of God. I don't know where you might fall on the whole dispensational and premillennial and amillennial and all of the theological names that we give to these end-time views of eschatology. But wherever you land, understand these truths. That salvation in that millennial kingdom is not going to come to Israel through a coming Savior, the second return of Christ, but through a Savior who has come, 
through Jesus' first coming. It's in what Jesus did in this first coming that he died upon Calvary for the sins of the world, Jew and Gentile alike. It's in his death and burial and resurrection that Jesus has overcome sin and death and the grave. And so that millennial kingdom that will come where God will restore in a literal way an earthly kingdom, an earthly Zion for Israel, is not going to be based upon an establishment separate from the the crucified, buried, and resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord and what he accomplished in the first coming. It will be built upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not be based upon some secondary work of Jesus yet to come. It will be established on the gospel once and for all delivered to the church. And so don't get so separate between Israel and the church that you you somehow think there's redemption for Israel apart from that which Jesus has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. No, if there is a millennial kingdom, which I believe there is to come, and a renewal and an earthly restoration of Zion and of ethnic Israel, it will be established based upon redemption purchased by the blood of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The Jew today needs salvation in Jesus, just as we who are Gentiles need salvation in Jesus for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right now, for the gospel's sake, Romans says they're enemies of the gospel because there's many Jews who do not believe Jesus truly was the servant of the Lord, the Christ. But for God's sake, they're still chosen. His callings are irrevocable without repentance, it says in Romans As I still hold, there is a future restoration in a literal sense and earthly way for ethnic Israel. Fine if you don't hold that view, but if you do hold that view, I've heard it taught too many times where there's some secondary work that's going to renew them. And no, don't lose the gospel. The gospel is the means by which that kingdom will be established. All of that's just a little bit of sidetracking parenthetical statement there to get back to our main point. Before we close, as watchmen on the walls, we are to declare the salvation of the Lord. Secondary application, not only do we proclaim to God in prayer, the the captain, what we see in the injustices in light of his promises, we also as watchmen on the walls are to proclaim to the inhabitants of the city and all who will hear of the coming salvation of the Lord. We're to give the word of God to the people. To the end of the world, it's the Lord who's proclaimed, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And God's got a holy people, a redeemed of the Lord, a sought out, a city not forsaken. And the beauty of the gospel message is, you can enter into this city, not by your works, not by what you can do and who you are or where you were born or what you've accomplished. No, only by the blood of the Lamb do you enter this city. Read Revelation. It's only by the blood of the Lamb that we overcome, that we conquer, because He's overcome, because He has conquered. But the beauty of the gospel is, it's for any and all who recognize their sin and repent and turn to Christ and come to Him and through Him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by Him. We declare as watchmen on the walls the salvation of the Lord. We are to proclaim that. To all who will listen, to all who hear, that there is salvation, and it's only found in the Lord, in Christ, in what God accomplished through Him, dying upon a cross for our sins, being buried and raised again. Mark 16 and 15, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We close tonight with the question of examination. 
What kind of watchman are you being? Wherever God's placed you on the wall. Some of you don't have the pulpit. Many of you don't have the pulpit. Some of you don't have a title of deacon or Sunday school teacher. But hear me, you're on the wall. If He saved you, He's given you a place. He's called you to do something. You're a watchman for His namesake. You're to be a praying watchman. You're to be a proclaiming watchman, proclaiming the salvation of the Lord to those that He's put within the hearing of your voice. And guess what? I might have a pulpit on my side of the wall, but there are people that hear you a whole lot more clearly on your side of the wall than where I'm at on the wall. God's got you there for a purpose. He's got you there for a reason. What kind of watchman are you being? I hope you're a praying watchman. I hope you pray without ceasing. Lifting it all up to the Lord. Not giving Him rest. Because your prayers are constantly before Him. Yearning and longing for that day. If He does come, He would so come boldly now. And I hope you're proclaiming the salvation of the Lord living, that your life alone isn't enough. You need to hear the gospel. You tell them about King Jesus. You tell them about the salvation that's come through him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Lord, I pray you would take your word and let us leave here not forgetting it, but being changed by it and carrying it with us. Lord, even as we go to all the places we'll go tomorrow, and this group that's gathered tonight, uh, we would be thinking how how good of a watchman, how faithful of a watchman am I being? Am I praying as I ought to be? Am I witnessing as I ought to be? Lord, help us to do both by Your grace. Lord, work, I pray, convict for conviction is needed. And if there be any here who may not know You as Lord and Savior, never come to Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, I pray even now in this invitation, they'd get that settled, they would repent and turn to Him. Find, save them because of Him, because of what He did for them at Calvary. I pray all of those things to you.